Good morning. We will be in Acts chapter 16 this morning. I want to encourage you to turn there. We're going to start reading with verses 11 through 15. If you would, let's stand as we read God's holy word, authoritative for us today, just as it was 2,000 years ago. Acts 16, starting with verse 11. So setting sail... From Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you had judged me or have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word that we read today in, in this chapter and, and further on, and even in the first portion of chapter 1 of Philippians. We thank you, Lord, for just the mercies that you've given us by giving us this word. Help us to pay attention, to meditate upon it, to apply it to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in the earlier chapters of Acts, we saw how Paul, on his first missionary journey with Barnabas, established churches in Galatia and later wrote to them the letter of Galatians. As we saw last time that we were together, it was two weeks ago, the first stop of Paul's second missionary journey this time was with the accompaniment of Silas and Luke and Timothy. And it was to visit these churches once more, and then chapter 16 and 18 detail in rapid succession the establishment of new churches in Philippi, to whom Paul wrote the letter of Philippians, in Thessalonica, to which the letter of Thessalonians was sent, and, and then Corinth, in whom, or to whom Paul wrote both letters of the Corinthians. And so the first city that Paul visits here in this group was Philippi. It was named for Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. And Luke mentions that it was a colony. And what he means is that Rome transformed it into a military colony in 31 BC. And if you look again at verse 14, you see one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And I believe we're told about Lydia for a few reasons. First, Luke wants us to know that the Gentiles throughout the world were hearing the gospel, were professing belief as God opened their hearts. And in fact, they were receiving the word in many cases, maybe most cases right at this point in time, with greater delight and anticipation than the Jewish families who lived in these Gentile cities. Two, God was drawing to himself both men and women. And though the women of Paul's world possessed few personal rights, yet God had said that in Christ there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Gentile. And so here Lydia 
a woman is a dominant focus of the visit to Philippi. And in the letter to Philemon, Paul will show the same dedication and the same interest in the fate of a runaway slave. And so we see Gentiles, women, slaves, all are recipients of the grace of God. And there's more in Acts 16 about this first trip to Philippi. We'll pick up the account for just a a short moment in verse 16 where we read, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that aren't lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so the rest of the chapter details how Paul and Silas freed from prison by an earthquake takes place while singing hymns. How they and other prisoners remained in the jail, much to the surprise of the jailer. And how the jailer is so astonished by this fact that they won't escape that he wanted to know what was different about them than his other prisoners. And it ends up with him embracing Christianity. And then how the city's officials come and discover that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens and in embarrassment ask them to leave the city. And I get the impression on a number of counts that, that the events here in chapter 16 were likely taking place within the span of about a week. And so it's, it's a whirlwind visit, right, that culminates in a public beating, jail time, essentially being escorted out of the city. And I imagine in the eyes of those at Philippi, Paul, Silas, and others like Timothy and Luke, these are probably bigger-than-life heroes. Though only in Philippi for a week or so, they free a young girl from demonic possession, then they're thrown in jail, from which they're rescued by a miraculous earthquake, and then they were gone. If you had been gone on vacation from Philippi for a week, you would have missed it. But I'm sure, however, that the Philippians, like Lydia... And her family, the jailer and his family, potentially some of the other prisoners who had stayed with Paul and Silas, and certainly all other converts, all followed the accounts of Paul's journey after they left the city. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 28, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things... There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. 
So though Paul and others may have been heroes to the Philippians, in Paul's eyes, he was something quite different. If you look at what he writes to the Philippians in, in his letter to that church there, Paul and Timothy, he says, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that word servant there is the translation of the Greek word doulos, which more commonly is used to you, uh, refer to a slave. And so Paul says, we're not celebrities, we are slaves of Christ. And this letter that he sent to the church was addressed to all the saints who are in Philippi, together with their leaders, overseers, deacons, grace to you, peace. And when Greeks wrote letters, they always began them with the term charis, which means grace. And when the Israelites wrote letters, they always began them with the Hebrew shalom, which means peace. And so he's combining these two, the Jewish and the Greek, greeting and endows them with a richer and deeper definition. There is true grace and true peace to be found in Jesus Christ. And because of his unmerited love and favor, God extends that grace to sinners through his Son. And because of Christ's sacrifice, peace is the result of that grace, both to Jew and to Gentile. And then just looking at a few more verses there, we read, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I want you to combine this intro to, to the Philippians letter with what we read in Acts 16, because Acts 16 tells us that Silas, Paul, Timothy, they went regularly down to the river for prayer and worship, and after they imprisoned, they met for a few more days at Lydia's home. Their time was, from the beginning, joy and celebration, but it was very short. Despite imprisonment, rejection from the magistrates, Paul harbored no regrets, no ill feelings, or unresolved conflicts, and 10 years later, and that's the case when he wrote this letter to the Philippians while imprisoned at Rome, all of that is still true. And why is that? Because as we read in that last verse there, Lydia and the others had joined in the partnership of the gospel from the very first day. They had not wavered in their faithfulness, and for 10 years, the congregation had nurtured and edified one another. And so as Paul sat in jail at Rome, remembering his many travels, including these brief ones at Philippi, and knowing that his time of ministry was closing, he could not help but be joyful in the memory of these individuals who take up such a brief space of Acts chapter 16. There in that first chapter of his letter, Philippians, Paul concludes his thoughts by saying, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about those words by Paul because I believe it's the foundation of why we have ourselves an assurance and a security in what God has done in our lives. The one who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in another letter in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, 
we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. What good would it do to call us, to redeem us, to bring us into union with His Son if He did not have a plan for preserving us as heirs of His kingdom? And that sealing by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians, He calls a guarantee of our inheritance. Have you ever guaranteed anything? Did that not mean that you were promising that what you said was true? Or that it would come to pass? If God guarantees something, should we not think that it will come to pass? And yet, despite the fact that Paul tells us that God has guaranteed our inheritance in his great confidence in the Philippians that God would would bring to fruition and completion what he had begun. There's still vast disagreement in the broader church over the matter of being able to be assured of our salvation. At some point in your life, if you are a child of God, the Holy Spirit moved and created new life in you. And ever since then, the Spirit has been working in you in a process that is called sanctification. And we use that word often, don't we? It's likely become a familiar word to you, this daily pursuit of of God and the ongoing transformation of the heart and mind and will where our priorities and our view of life over time are altered, revolutionized, sometimes reversed. Some Christians have the idea, though, that they must sit back and let the Holy Spirit do everything. Once I'm saved, that's it, but the Bible doesn't treat maturity in Christ as a passive process. Rather, we are told to actively pursue holiness, Christ-centeredness in our lives, recognizing that the one who commands us to work, to persevere, and to obey is also the one who gives us the strength to do it. You have to work. But recognize that if the work is done, God did it in you and through you. Jesus made it plain throughout his ministry that one does not become a disciple unless that person is willing to take up his cross daily and be a follower. And the New Testament emphasizes denying oneself, dying to sin, serving others. And so with that, let me say without hesitation, you can have an assurance of your salvation. Romans 8.30 makes clear what's often called the chain of salvation, or the ordo salutis. It says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those also whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is called a chain because each link in that chain leads to the next. And that first link of the chain, which Paul equates to predestining or electing, is when God determines in the counsel of his will to intervene in your life and to change your heart. Luke 2 says, though, that God also called you. Or I'm sorry, linked to, not Luke 2, says that God also called you. That's when having given you a heart that will love and desire the Lord and his kingdom, that he through the gospel drew you to, you to himself. And when you first heard the good news of Christ, his death and his resurrection, when you heard that and that began to sink in, when you learned that his sacrifice was for you on your behalf because you were dead in sin, 
when the full weight of your depravity weighed upon your new heart and awakened conscience, that's when God called you. Acts 16, 14 says there that God opened Lydia's heart to pay attention. That's what happened. To the things that Paul had said, how had God not predestined and called Lydia, she would have thought that what Paul was saying was foolish. Because, as he says in other places, the gospel is a stumbling block. It's foolishness to the world. But to those who are being called, it is the aroma of life. And so what we see in this chain, those he called, he also justified. Notice each link connects to the next because it says those he called, meaning that group, not some A few, many, most, but those, the whole group he called, he also justified. And that's link three. That's the moment when God declares you not guilty and transfers his wrath against your sin to Jesus Christ upon the cross. You receive the pure righteousness of Christ. His white robe, as Revelation describes it, and gives, he gives you your His robe of righteousness, and you give him your filthy rags of works that are tainted by sin. And then look closely at link four. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. God will one day bring you to glory for the rest of eternity as a joint heir with Christ. Can a person be predestined, called, justified, I'm just using the terminology here in this verse, and then lost. No. Paul says that the same one that is predestined is also called, the same one that is called is also justified, and the same one that is justified is glorified. There's no break in that chain. And so Romans 8 teaches us that when God starts something, he finishes it. Just like Paul tells the Philippians in chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Does Paul say, be faithful and try hard to make it? No, he does not. Why not? Because it's not your faithfulness that is the key. It is God's faithfulness and work. And so the pronoun in Romans 8.30, did you catch it? Is he. The pronoun is he, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Yes, you cooperate in your sanctification, but you can have complete confidence, just as Paul does, that there are no lost causes because the faithfulness at issue is not yours, but the complete, utter, reliable faithfulness of God. And those whose hearts and minds have been and are being renewed by God's grace should not be obsessed with worry about falling away from God, because although we do have these periods of wandering in the wilderness, of of falling into sin, wrestling with the flesh, we really are new people. God never plants trees that don't bear fruit. Jesus said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit a fruit that will last. And the conclusion that we learn from the letter to James, that James wrote 
is if you don't have the fruit, then check the root. Right? Once heard somebody say, nobody can take a believer out of Christ but the believer himself, but that's not what God's word says. The Bible says no created thing, including yourself, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is much too powerful, and he is the one who initiates, builds, and completes. And as I said earlier, if God loves us enough to do all those things in that chain, to purchase us with his son's blood and bring us into union with himself, then why would we worry whether God would preserve us in that love? God does not pay the ultimate cost to purchase us with the possibility to then lose us again. Paul says that powerfully in Romans 5.8, and I quote it often, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners. Jesus once said, no greater love is there than that one should die for a friend. God so loves us that while we were sinners, not friends, not strangers, but enemies, Christ died for us. And so he says, if Christ had that kind of depth of love for us to justify us, how much more then, he asks in verse 9, and listen to that, look at that, shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What he's saying is, if Christ loved us enough to die for us, he certainly loves us enough in his resurrection life to preserve us. Many people see their salvation in terms of a decision that they made, and since their assurance is based upon human emotion and will, they know how often their feelings and their desires change. They end up fearful rather than resting in the character and plan and purpose of a sovereign, loving God. I mean, after all, we think of the decisions that we make every day, the decisions to take a new job or to move or the decisions to buy that particular home, and we think about the disastrous decisions that we've made. Wouldn't you fear having your eternal destiny hanging on your decision-making ability, an ability that might lead you to commit yourself to a new course one minute and reject it the next? So consider what it would mean if you could lose Salvation. If you could fall away from what God has done, you would return to a condition of spiritual death. What kind of regeneration by the Holy Spirit would that be if those whom he has spiritually resurrected and given eternal life and clothed with new clothes are capable of dying again? Especially when we read what Peter says. 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Imperishable means you can't perish, you can't die. Abiding means it doesn't fade away. And so while sheep sometimes stray from the shepherd, after all, if sheep didn't have a tendency to still stray, why would they need a shepherd? The shepherd's job is to bring the sheep back. We are sheep. God has brought us to life. He has brought us into a better, greener pasture. But we, like sheep, often continue to stray. And of course, we pay the penalty for straying. When we're living in a period of rebellion as children of God, we suffer. 
Paul once wrote, we died to sin, so how can we live it any longer? There's that constant question before our minds. When we've been changed by the power of God, living in rebellion goes against that nature. We ask that question. It's not just rhetorical. It's a, it's a deep, abiding, conscious, striking kind of question that sits with us. We can't for very long continue without wrestling with that. Those experiences which at once seemed pleasurable have lost their glamour. We will continue to be unhappy if we continue to sin. Even though that sin may be temporarily enjoyable, it is to the new born believer eventually unbearable. And I realize that a sinning Christian is one thing, but an apostatizing one is another. So what about those who leave the faith, as we would describe it? Well, the apostle John once described in an apostate in 1 John 2.19. He writes, they, the apostates, went out from us, which means they abandoned the Christian fellowship, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, put that together with everything that we've talked about so far, if they had been of us, they would have stayed. And we hear what John is saying. If those left had truly been believers, they would have stayed. John doesn't say they might have stayed, or there's a strong probability that they weren't believers. But see, he speaks in these absolute statements. It's because he's confident in the work of God and what it means. If they were believers, they would have stayed, period. Why? Because it's God's faithfulness that matters, not ours. When he begins something, he is faithful to complete it. Stubbornness, faithlessness, doubt, Self-will, all of those things even cannot stand in God's way. They'll certainly result in his discipline as a father. But they won't defeat his work. I couldn't say it any better than Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should work in them. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works that were established before, and the context of there beforehand is before the foundation of the world, before you were ever born. And so returning to our two morning's passages in Acts 16 of Philippians 1, Paul can say to the Philippians, I may have doubts about many things. That's what he says. I may have doubts about many things. But I am confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And friends, I'm confident of that of you as well. Because ultimately my confidence is in the Lord. I can say with confidence that he who began a good work in you will complete it. And then these further words are at the end of that introduction. Where he says, it's right for me to feel that way about you all. One, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. That's the second part. I hold you in my heart. Second part, you are all partakers with me of grace. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge, discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, that you would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ 
to the glory and praise of God. So Paul's confidence may have been partly of affection, but he clearly says, you are partakers with me of grace. The reminder again that our confidence ultimately rests in the grace of God and the faithfulness of God. And what is the result? Not only that God's work will be finished, but the natural result of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that starts with predestination, the calling, the justification, the glorification, is that on that road from justification to glorification, he is sanctifying his people. He is causing their love to abound more and more. He is increasing their knowledge and discernment. And that's what we should see amongst this body of believers. A people that are growing in these ways, approving what is excellent, displaying the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Yes, the final chain of God's work in us is that we are glorified, but ultimately he gets the glory, right? Because as Paul concludes, all of this is to the glory and praise of God. It's his work that he began. It's his work that he completes. It's to his glory that redounds the praise of his people that he took us. Called us. Justified us. Sanctified us. Glorified us. And we throw our crowns at his feet. And when you think of all these things and how God planned out all of this beforehand, as Ephesians said, then then as the book of Hebrews says, before, that's where we get the context, before the foundation of the world, how small and insignificant are, are our affairs from day to day in these moments of our lives. Before God created the heavens and the earth, God saved you and me. I cannot fathom such omniscience. I can't fathom such planning, such sovereignty, such grace, while, you know, obviously dying for me, knowing I would be an enemy, yet making me a bride, a part of the bride. And I can only wonder and marvel at what God has done, what he's doing, what he will do. I can only be thankful that he saved me, that he loved me, that what he began in me, he will complete, and that love compels me. As Paul writes in Philippians, it compels me inevitably draws me to be more and more like Christ. And because it compels me and it compels you, you will persevere until the end. You see, that's the confidence, right? It's because God's love in you has that kind of power. We were in our midweek study this past Wednesday talking about, Paul says, what is that power that's in you? I gave when he gave his spirit to you to dwell you. He says it's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That's powerful. Is it not? That is why you will persevere because it's God's powerful love, his resurrection from the dead raising power in you to persevere to stay in the fellowship, to not fall away, to continue to grow in Christ. And it's why Paul 
sitting there in that prison, writing to the Philippians, whom he barely had gotten a chance to meet, probably corresponded, maybe so, past that point, but confident they will be with him in eternity because that's the marvelous, life-changing, life-saving work of God. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your great mercies to us and all that you've blessed us with. Thank you, Lord, for life. But more than that, thank you that, that you had a plan. And Lord, that you initiated through your sovereign will. I don't understand it. I just know that that inevitably led to you calling me. And that led inevitably to you justifying me. And that led inevitably to you sanctifying me and will lead inevitably to you glorifying me. Because you will get the credit and the glory because it's your powerful love working in me and in all of these here who love you. Father, I do pray that you would help us to marvel at these things. Help us to really comprehend the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of of all that you are, all that you've done, everything that we read in your word. Finish in us what you have begun, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.